So over the course of this retreat so far, we've been highlighting the theme of balance. And this balance is really woven throughout all of the Buddha's teachings. So last night, uh, George talked about right effort. How one very important skill in the practice is knowing when to apply more effort and when to ease up to some extent. And even in terms of balance now, how's the sound? It sounds a little bit echoey to me. Is it a bit too close? Let's try that. Is that better? Worse? You're saying no, you're saying yes. It's better? Okay. So just to recap this theme of balance that's woven throughout the Buddha's teachings, everything he taught since his uh, original awakening, he framed in terms of what's known as the middle way. And this middle way refers to the balance between self-indulgence on one hand and self-mortification on the other. So self-indulgence is the tendency to take refuge in sense pleasures, to try to make ourselves continuously comfortable by manipulating the world out there to make ourselves happy. And as I said the other night, most of us know that this is at best only ever partly successful. And the drawback is that it keeps us dependent on external conditions rather than helping us to strengthen the inner qualities that will allow us to meet life's challenges with more ease. And then self-mortification, on the other hand, originally referred to the ascetic practices that were common in the Buddha's day. These were spiritual practices that involved various ways of subduing the body. For example, taking vows to never sit down or to only sleep only sleep on a bed of nails or to totally restrict how much food one ate. Unfortunately for us, these aren't uh, part of our culture these days. <laughs> but Joseph has made the point that what is quite common, not so much physical self-torture as psychological self-torture. And there seems to be something in our social conditioning these days that make many people very hard on themselves. Many people have strong tendencies towards feelings of inadequacy and unworthiness and even self-loathing. And we can consciously or unconsciously bring these underlying tendencies even into our meditation practice. So it becomes yet another self-improvement project driven by self-judgment, anxiety, and fear. So it's actually rooted in aversion. And having uh, shared some of that conditioning myself, especially in the beginning of my practice, when I first heard a metaphor which is used to frame this whole practice, the metaphor of the two wings to awakening, being wisdom and compassion, I found this so helpful in my own practice and also in working with students. So wisdom is the ability to see clearly, to develop insight. And compassion is the willingness to turn towards suffering, to meet it with kindness and when possible to help it release. And perhaps because we're in the insight tradition 
generally there seems to be more emphasis on the wisdom wing of the practice and not always so much attention paid to the compassion wing. So tonight I'd like to focus more on the compassion wing in the service of helping us find this balance. Because most of us have a bias towards one wing or the other. And in the bigger picture of our practice, it can be helpful from time to time just to check and to bring awareness to how is the balance between wisdom and compassion. Because I know in my own practice with hindsight, I can now recognize phases where one or other of these two wings got developed a bit too far ahead of the other. And that gap was uncomfortable, unsettling, discouraging, until I realized what had happened and could then take steps to come back to balance. So because we're in the insight tradition, in the beginning for me, it was more common for the wisdom wing to get ahead of the compassion wing. And we can see, uh, we do put a lot of emphasis on seeing clearly. And in the early stages of the practice, we start to recognize our insights are on a more psychological level. So we start to recognize our own personal habit patterns, our own psychological makeup and and conditioning. And at this stage of the practice, it can sometimes feel like all of our so-called defilements, in quotation marks, are revealed to us with a vibrant, even violent technicolor or sort of extra high definition. So as Joseph said the other night, that quote, self-knowledge is always bad news. And we can laugh, and I actually want to uh, sort of put a pin in that because there is some truth to it, but it's not the whole truth. And I'd like to come back to that quote later. For now, just to say that as the practice deepens and we move beyond psychological insights, we can start to see more clearly into the three universal characteristics of all experience. The truth that everything is impermanent, anicca, Because of that impermanence, it's unreliable, unsatisfactory, dukkha, sometimes translated as suffering. And there's no permanent, stable self to whom all experience is happening, so anatta or not-self. And especially in the beginning, sometimes these uh, insight into these three characteristics can be a little unsettling, even painful because we're being challenged to let go of some very deeply held beliefs about who we are and how the world is. So when we feel that unsettling, unsettledness, it might be an opportunity to consciously cultivate the compassion wing for a while, to develop more resilience of heart and mind, so that we can then navigate these challenges with more degree of balance. On the other side of the scale, there can also be phases in the practice when the compassion wing feels to get too far ahead of the wisdom wing. For example, we might start to connect or open to more fully into the truth of dukkha, of suffering, and we start to feel our own and others' pain so intensely that at times we get overwhelmed or fall into grief. And we really don't have to look very uh, far to find this dukkha. 
thanks to modern media, modern technology, all the misery of the world is being pumped into our living rooms and into our devices. And that's on top of the dukkha that we have in our own, in ourselves, in our families, in our communities. So it's not surprising that at times we would fall into despair. And at those times we might need to reconnect with the wisdom wing of the practice and to tune into the other two universal characteristics of impermanence and not-self. To see, because when we see that everything is constantly changing, even dukkha comes and goes, and none of this is personal. And then it becomes possible to taste moments of deep freedom, even in the midst of difficulty. So bringing awareness to each of these two wings of wisdom and compassion and learning how to balance them is yet another art and skill of the practice. So compassion is, as I said earlier, the willingness to turn towards suffering, to meet it with kindness, and where possible, to help it to release. And the Pali word karuna, that's usually translated as compassion, in English it... uh, We think of it as feeling with, so one definition is of the heart that vibrates in response to another's pain or to our own pain. But for most people, uh, those untrained worldlings that the Buddha talked about, this is not the way we usually relate to pain or dukkha. It's totally counterproductive, not counterproductive, counterintuitive to move towards suffering rather than away from it. So when we hear this invitation to get closer to dukkha, part of us might think, well, wait a minute. This isn't what I signed up for. I came here to get away from suffering, not go into it. Why would I want to get closer to it? Suffering hurts. So one reason is that inevitably, there are times in life when pain or suffering is inescapable. So it's very useful to practice meeting small difficulties now so that we can uh, build the compassion muscle before we really need it. So sometimes one analogy I use for this uh, turning to face pain is it's a bit like when we're swimming in the ocean and we see one of those monster waves coming towards us. Our usual instinct is to try to turn and swim away or run away if we can touch the ground, but Usually if we do that, we end up getting dumped. And a better strategy is actually to turn towards it and then dive just before it breaks. And it might be pretty turbulent for a few moments, but we usually come out the other side in reasonable shape, a lot better than being slammed into the sand. And I think from this analogy, you can see that it takes courage and it takes presence of mind, mindfulness, to be willing to turn towards the challenge. And the more we can do that with practice, our capacity to meet difficulties gets stronger and stronger. So we're fortunate that as with all of the Buddha's teachings, this too is a quality that we can cultivate as we were doing yesterday with Nakawa's guided meditation. So compassion starts with this base of metta, of kindness or goodwill. 
And when we have some degree, some uh, grounding in metta, we can turn that goodwill towards pain, towards stress, distress, and it naturally flowers as compassion. So when I gave the overview uh, of the Brahma Viharas the other day, I quoted Long Chen Rabjampa, who said, out of the soil of friendliness or metta grows the beautiful bloom of compassion, karuna. Watered with tears of joy, mudita, under the cool shade of the tree of equanimity, upeka. So metta then is the soil that the other heart qualities grow and develop from. And we might hear that image of compassion as a, a beautiful bloom and feel quite inspired. But in mainstream society, compassion generally hasn't been highly valued. And if we look at the state of the world right now, it can feel at times like we're in the midst of an epidemic of non-compassion. And perhaps because of mainstream society's tendency towards perfectionism and idealism and competitiveness, individualism, For many of us, even the idea of cultivating compassion can seem quite foreign or even threatening. So often when we do begin to try to develop this quality, what we come into direct contact with are all the obstacles to compassion. So remembering that uh, training slogan I gave the other other day, if it's in the way, it is the way those same obstacles can become vehicles to compassion if we approach them in the right way. So I'd like to begin this exploration just by talking about some of the challenges we can face when we first start to try to develop compassion. In my own experience, uh, at the beginning of my practice, the first challenge was that I was totally clueless about what compassion even was. But I was fortunate because the first uh, 10-day Vipassana retreat I sat was taught by teachers who put a lot of emphasis on wisdom and compassion in their teachings. But it's quite amazing when I think back on it now, that first retreat, I literally didn't even hear the word compassion. And it was only when I went back for a second retreat with the same teachers about three months later that I heard them talking about compassion over and over and over again. And on the second retreat, this was a complete revelation. It almost felt like I'd been hit over the head by a sledgehammer. And it was as if something cracked open and I realized, wow, this is something that had been missing for most of my life. It was absent in my family. It was absent in most of the communities that I spent time in and even in the friends that I chose before I got interested in the Dharma. But on this second retreat, I finally recognized that this was the missing piece for me. And I was so excited that I went up to the teachers and thanked them for this radical new approach to teaching. And they told me that actually they had not changed anything. (laughs) And that retreat was identical to the one I'd sat three months earlier. Which was actually true, these particular teachers, word for word, teach the same retreat, but I still didn't believe them. So I went and looked at the book of their teaching and discovered that that was actually the case. And it was pretty shocking to realize that first retreat, it was as though I I didn't even have the receptors in my being to be able to take that in. 
And yet something shifted. And on the second retreat, it felt like that was all I heard. So I offer that just as encouragement in case any of you are feeling like this idea of compassion practice is kind of challenging. Because it's true that uh, the very common obstacle to experiencing compassion is fear. We're hardwired to avoid experiences that are painful and potentially life-threatening. So it's not surprising that we might have a deep and almost instinctual fear of moving towards difficulty instead of away from it. And there's a caveat here. There's a reason that there are two wings to awakening. Wisdom needs to support the compassion. And it's wisdom that helps protect us from, uh, that allows us to have a wise fear that might keep us out of genuine danger. So with practice and perhaps with some degree of trial and error, we learn to distinguish between genuine compassion and what some call, sometimes called foolish compassion or idiot compassion. And this is more when we get caught in unhelpful patterns of trying to help everyone with everything all the time, which of course is harmful to us and also potentially harmful to the people we're trying to help. If we're stuck in a pattern more of sort of enabling or codependency of some kind. So wisdom makes sure that we uh, include ourselves in our compassion practice. Otherwise, it can do more harm than good. So learning how to uh, say no to all the often competing demands on our time and energy is one of the powerful skills of wisdom that helps protect our compassion and keep it... um, balanced. So a few years ago, I I found a quote by Thomas Merton that some of you may know. It's quite old now, but uh, almost shockingly, I think, still very relevant. He says, there's a pervasive form of contemporary violence that is activism and overwork. The rush and pressure of modern life are a form perhaps the most common form of its innate violence. To allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything, is to succumb to violence. The frenzy of our activism neutralizes our work for peace. It destroys our own inner capacity for peace and it destroys the fruitfulness of our own work because it kills the root of inner wisdom which makes the work fruitful. So you can hear in that, I think, also this uh, need to balance the wisdom and the compassion so that our activism is done in the spirit of compassion and in the spirit of wisdom that protects us and the um, communities that we're trying to support. So wisdom helps us understand when to say no and when to say yes. But the point of this wisdom is not to somehow make us immune from suffering. It sounds paradoxical, but in some ways it's to make us more vulnerable to it. Because unless we can open to the 10,000 sorrows of life, 
we won't be a- able to open to the 10,000 joys either. So part of this training in compassion is to expand the heart to include the more of the full spectrum of what life offers us. And also to recognize and to honor those times when it is appropriate to close the heart and to stay safe. So a few years ago, I was exploring this uh, feeling in, in my own being during a period of intensive practice of the heart sometimes closing. And I realized I had this belief that it was somehow supposed to be open all the time. And I was kind of pushing to make that be the case. And then I started to recognize that's also on some level a form of violence. It's not honoring the natural rhythm of opening and closing. And this image came to mind that I've shared with some of you of um, those little marine creatures known as sea anemones, the little blobby jelly things that live in rock pools. So when I was a kid, we used to, <clears throat> uh, I spent some time living in Scotland and we used to go on family vacations to the beach and go exploring the rock pools along the coast. And I was fascinated by all these red and brown and orange and yellow jelly things. And my father showed me how you could touch the tentacles and they would retract and become this smooth blob of jelly. And I wanted to know why. And I found out later it's because when their tentacles are open, they can feed, but they're also vulnerable. So when when they're under threat, they need to bring the tentacles in to stay safe. But when they're retracted, they can't feed. So there's this rhythm of knowing when to open and to be nourished and when to close and stay safe. And I realized, oh, that's also how the heart is. It needs to honor that rhythm of knowing when to open and when to close. And this too is part of the wisdom of this practice. It's also about increasing our tolerance for vulnerability. So a few years ago, I was talking about this whole process in a weekend workshop in Australia. And one of the participants very honestly shared that whenever he heard, just heard the word vulnerability, something in him wanted to scurry back into his wombat hole. (laughs) Wombats are these big, chunky kind of Australian marsupials that live in burrows in the ground and spend a lot of time there. So I think most of us have an inner wombat that at times just wants to get back in this hole and stay there. But in case you need any more convincing, there's a growing body of social science research that's starting to recognize the link between our capacity for vulnerability and our capacity for happiness. So some of you may know of the work of Brene Brown, who's a professor of sociology at Houston University. And she spent something like the last 10 years studying vulnerability and courage, authenticity and shame. And I don't know that she's a meditator, but uh, she does quote Pema Chodron in some of her work. And some of the conclusions she come to really are in alignment of what we're exploring here. So I'd like to read you just a short extract from an interview she gave a few years ago where she says, if you have a Petri dish, one of those laboratory dishes, and you put shame in there, 
Shame being this pervasive feeling of not being good enough and not being whatever enough, not thin enough or rich enough or popular enough, promoted enough, loved enough. This shame only needs three things to survive in this little Petri dish and to grow, to grow exponentially and creep into every corner and crevice of your life. And those three things are secrecy, silence and judgment. If you have the same amount of shame in a Petri dish and you douse it with some empathy, if you share your story with someone who can hear you and look back at you and say, you're not alone, shame dies. Pema Chodron defines compassion as knowing your darkness well enough that you can sit in the dark with others. And she goes on to say, which is why it's so ironic to me that people think that vulnerability is weakness when really letting ourselves fully soften into feeling is one of the most courageous things we can do. Emotions won't kill you, but not feeling them will. Our fear of emotion absolutely kills us. Pain won't kill us, but numbing pain kills people every single day. We're the most obese, in debt, medicated, workaholic, addicted adults in human history. Pain won't kill you, but numbing the pain kills people every minute of every day. So what's the antidote? To increase our tolerance for discomfort, to practice being uncomfortable. So practicing being uncomfortable, how do we actually do this? How do we increase our tolerance for discomfort? And one of the uh, qualities that Brene points to is empathy. If you can, as she says, share your story with someone who can hear you and look back at you and say, you're not alone. This is what helps the shame to be released. And to me, what she's describing here is compassion. And in the context of a retreat, we can learn how to offer this to ourselves through this process of what I think of as befriending ourselves. So one way we might start this is to practice relating to ourselves as we would to a good friend who's going through a hard time. I think most of us have the capacity, at least some of the time, to just be with a friend who's struggling in a way that's open and caring and compassionate. So if we can take this same compassion that we might offer to someone else and begin to offer it to ourselves, then over time, with practice, this starts to come more easily. And eventually, our hearts and minds become so imbued with this quality that we're able to offer it more fully and more genuinely to others too. And this process of befriending is really supported by the practice of listening listening deeply. And listening is a practice of compassion because it's about tuning in or attunement, listening to our own and others' experience with as much presence as possible. So yesterday, Nakawe mentioned Kuan Yin, who's the uh, embodiment of compassion in the Mahayana tradition and how she's sometimes referred to as she who hears the cries of the world. And in the Zen tradition, they say she listens as if she had ears on every cell of her body. That's quite a striking 
image. And I find this metaphor of listening very powerful because it really requires us to settle back and to receive, to respond rather than react. But this receptivity is not passive because out of that deep listening, we come to know an appropriate response. So as some of you may know, in some some of the ways that uh, Kuan Yin is depicted, she's uh, sitting in this position. So half of her body is in meditation and the other half is poised, ready to spring into action. So she's this embodiment of stillness and movement, of receptivity and activity. She's attuned at once to her own inner world and also to the cries of the outer world. So in my own compassion practice, there was a significant turning point when I realized that these Brahma-Vihara practices are not about trying to somehow manufacture or conjure up some state that wasn't already there. It's actually about tuning in to the heart and starting to recognize those very, at first perhaps very faint signals of kindness, compassion, joy and equanimity because these are the natural states of the mind, of the heart, when they're not obscured by these hindrances and so on. And while it's true that at first these uh, flickers of compassion may seem very far off or distant, as we learn to listen more carefully and deeply, we can recognize their signature tunes. So I sometimes use the analogy of the Hubble telescope for this process because in my not very scientific understanding, the Hubble telescope is a very powerful piece of machinery technology that's constantly scanning the far reaches of the universe and it's recording images with something I found out called a faint object camera. And in the same way, we can tune this faint object camera into the deepest, darkest spaces of our own hearts and perhaps detect a very faint pulse of warmth way, way, way in the distance. And as our compassion antenna get more uh, sensitive, we can learn to recognize that signal and the recognition amplifies it, brings it directly into consciousness and over time it can fill more and more of the heart and the mind. So this deep listening that Kuan Yin evokes includes deep listening to our own pain along with everyone else's. And in my own experience, I've come to think of self-compassion as being a kind of a universal solvent for working with all difficult mind states. So as we've been working with sometimes in the group meetings, I've invited you to just touch into and stay with the painful emotions that come up and to see if we can meet them with care and acceptance and maybe even some appreciation. Because ultimately these painful emotions can help strengthen both wisdom and compassion. So this self-compassion is a very powerful uh, attribute of the practice and yet for many it's even more challenging than regular compassion. And just the idea of it can sometimes bring up strong reactions in people. 
So coming back to the quote that I quoted earlier about self-knowledge being bad news, the same author also said, nothing is loathsomer than the self-loathing of a self one loathes. Nothing is loathsomer than the self-loathing of a self one loathes. It's quite a tongue twister, (laughs) as well as being emotionally entangling. But, and he also said, when you look at this mirror, I hope you'll remember that there's always another way of seeing things. That's the beginning of wisdom. So beginning to be able to see beyond our habitual conditioning, even if it's of self-loathing, is the beginning of wisdom. And it's also the gateway to compassion. Yet because self-aversion or self-loathing is so widespread these days, We need to have a lot of patience if we notice reactivity as we move into what might be more unfamiliar terrain. So just to normalize how challenging this can be, I recently read a short paper by a psychologist who's working in the field of self-compassion. And he wrote about some of these challenges. He said, commonly for high shame and self-critical people, particularly those from harsh backgrounds. The beginning of the experience of warmth and kindness can ignite considerable sadness and grief. Self-kindness, too, can be viewed with suspicion as being soft, self-indulgent, or not deserved. This usually indicates a fear of developing or experiencing self-compassion, an exploration might reveal that the individual is afraid that if they give up self-criticism, they will become lazy, unpleasant, or unlovable. And some also think that they will be punished for self-compassion by paying for it later or having it taken away. So to begin with, for some people, this orientation towards self-compassion might need to include learning how to relate very patiently to our deepest psychological conditioning. And sometimes in my own experience uh, early on and in working with students, it can seem like we would rather do anything than actually turn our attention towards our own distress and meet it with kindness. So sometimes when I work with students and we uh, start to explore this practice, they say that, One of the obstacles is that they can't find phrases for self-compassion that feel authentic. And so sometimes I'll invite them to explore that with me and we'll play around to try and find phrases that do make sense. And I shared this with some of you in the group interviews that in some cases the phrases they come up with sound something like this. May I be willing at some point in the future to have the intention to move in the general direction of beginning to cultivate some degree of compassion towards myself. And we can laugh, but this is the invitation to start where you are. And even if it's far away at arm's length, just even that much over time can start to begin to move it closer. So we can be very creative with the phrases we use or don't use because we don't actually need to use phrases. At times, simply stopping when we recognize some kind of pain, acknowledging it for a moment and perhaps physically placing a hand on the heart briefly 
as just flashing on to that orientation to compassion. Taking a moment to stop and to breathe in and to breathe out with what's difficult. And as we open up even that much space around the pain, we're then in a better position to begin to apply some of the other strategies for strengthening compassion. So one powerful way we can do this, because I think it seems to be pretty common when we're in pain, we tend to collapse into our own pain and to disconnect from others and to disconnect from the world. And so one antidote to that strategy is to make the effort to consciously think of other beings who might be experiencing something similar in this moment. So a few years ago, I was on retreat at the Forest Refuge, and this is kind of a, it's not a very elegant example, but I think it gets the message across. I'd been experiencing a chronic health condition, and so I'd been prescribed a course of three very strong antibiotics that I had to take the day the retreat started. I'd been warned that they could cause quite strong nausea, but I generally don't get sick, so I thought, I'll be fine. But from the very first day of taking them, it was like the moment I woke up in the morning until the moment I went to bed at night, I just felt like I was on the verge of throwing up. And everywhere I went, all I could think of was, where is there a bucket, where is there a door, where's the nearest bathroom, etc. It was like the whole world just collapsed into me and my stomach. That was it, which got pretty claustrophobic after three or four days. And so finally I was looking, well, how can I kind of open up my awareness? And I just decided to bring to mind all the people around the world who in this moment were also experiencing nausea. And I started thinking of all the pregnant women who were going through morning sickness and all the sailors out at sea and caught in storms and suffering from seasickness and all the people going through chemotherapy and really struggling to eat, and all the people with hangovers, moaning and groaning and saying, never again. And I started to imagine all of these millions of people all around the world sort of retching together in unison. And to my surprise, even though I still felt ill, there was a kind of a lightness and even a joy with this sense of connection. So that's a relatively trivial example of how we might bring wisdom and compassion together to support each other. Because when I was able to really feel that the pain wasn't mine alone, that many people around the world were suffering in similar ways, it helped me understand the truth of anatta, that nothing is personal and I'm not in control. And with this wisdom, there was a new sense of lightness and openness. So there was almost literally more room in the heart and the mind for compassion to grow. So this is one of the benefits of cultivating the Brahma Viharas that I mentioned the other day, that they act as a kind of protection for our hearts and minds. They make us more resilient and less vulnerable to the visiting defilements or hindrances. And when we're free from these, we have the capacity to see more clearly. So in this way, wisdom and compassion start to become more and more inseparable. 
And later on in the Buddhist tradition, these two qualities became fused in the development of the bodhisattva ideal. And the bodhisattva is uh, someone who's taken a vow to postpone their own freedom so that they can help others find their way out of suffering too. And whether or not this ideal resonates for us personally, we can still perhaps connect with the understanding that all of this effort that we're making here, it's of benefit not only to ourselves, but everyone we come into contact with. And again, because of our habit of self-criticism, it can be easy to dismiss our own strengths and good qualities as insignificant. But as George was pointing to the other night, the power of positive thinking, the right effort to keep attuning to our own strengths is a very powerful way of renouncing or challenging the habit of um, self-criticism. And one way we can do this is to keep reorienting to our own deepest aspirations. So the English Dharma teacher, the one who, Rob Berbea, who came up with this phrase, uh, reinterpreting the hindrances as manifestations of our humanity, he also talks about the power of aspiration. <clears throat> he says, often untapped, there was a great power accessible and heartfully connecting with our own deepest aspirations. Self-criticism tends to squash these aspirations and obscure our connection with them. Conversely though, tuning into and sustaining a focus on the felt force of these aspirations within oneself in ways that allow them to gather strength and allows the being to open to that strength can significantly undermine the dynamics of self-criticism. So it's an invitation to keep turning to what are our true values? What are our deepest aspirations for ourselves and for our practice? And in the spirit of, of that, I'd like to close with just a few of my favorite lines from Shantideva's uh, Bodhicharya Vatara, a guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life. And this is a Tibetan text that's apparently also a favorite of His Holy, Holiness the Dalai Lama, who, it said, reads every day. And it's a, it's a long text, so I'll just read just a few passages, a few lines from it. It says, May I be a protector to those without protection, a leader for those who journey, and a boat, a bridge, a passage, for those desiring the further shore. May I be the doctor and the medicine, and may I be the nurse for all sick beings in the world until everyone is healed. May the pain of every living creature be completely cleared away. May the pain of every living creature be completely cleared away. May the pain of every living creature be completely cleared away. So thank you for your attention. Let's just sit quietly for a few moments and let the words dissolve.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.